I'm John Stepling, and this is a kind of roundtable on theater and culture and aesthetics, and part of Aesthetic Resistance, which is the name of the workshops. Uh, there's Wes Walker, Guy Zimmerman, Chris Rossi, John Bauer, and myself. And we're going to just talk about a number of things, beginning with, with theater, because that's ostensibly what we all do, and that's a little bit like being the maker of buggy whips today. Uh, theater is, is a very marginalized and almost nearly invisible art form anymore. There, there is obviously theater out there, but it's not what I think any of us um, really thought theater was when we began um, when we began practicing theater. Uh, when I look at theater, I, I, I began personally off off Broadway. I was a really young guy hanging out um, in New York with people at Theater Genesis, Murray Mednick, Sam Shepard, and all the attendant related venues at that time, La Mama and uh, Cafe Chino, Judson's and all of that. And that was the last organic movement in theater in the United States. When Mayor Lindsay was replaced and funding for the arts disappeared very quickly, when that window shut, a lot of people left New York, among them Murray Mednick. And um, when he got to California, that's sort of a few years later saw the, the beginning of the Padua workshop and festival, which lasted 13 years. Uh, and he invited a number of people who had been involved in off-off in New York, Sam Shepard, Irene Fornes, and others like John O'Keefe from San Francisco, Martin Epstein, also from New York. And uh, Padua served for its little over a decade as a, as a kind of postscript to the off-off Broadway movement. And others like John Claude Vanitali ended up in Taiwan um, teaching English. I mean, people, there was no space left in the United States for, for most of us. Um, and uh, Padua was, was a vital kind of training ground for theater artists. And there is nothing like that anymore. And of course, recently we've seen this equity waiver vote, and we can talk about that at some point. But uh, effectively, the system killed theater arts and replaced it with a bureaucratized system of MFA programs and, and the, the kind of tyranny of that system of the MFA production line um, has, has been deadly to, um, to radical voices and dissenting voices. And really, if you begin to include Hollywood in this discussion, um, it was the erasure of working class voices um, in American theater and, and in you know, what has come to be called entertainment, um, which is an insidious term if you break it down. 
so what one what strategy one employs now to try to work in theater those strategies are increasingly um, kind of Byzantine, I think, because it's very difficult. And it's inevitable that we're going to talk about politics and history and memory and all kinds of things connected to this and film because there is a, there is a deficit in consciousness today in the general public, maybe in everyone, since the advent of, of the internet and social media and um, the sort of the damage that these screens, the habituation to these screens has caused, I think is acute and undeniable. Um, you can't find an educator um, in the United States who won't tell you that students can no longer think, talk, read, um, and, and that critical thinking has all but disappeared really it's very it's it's very rare to find um, uh, young people who who are capable of reading uh, at the level that they were 50 years ago and and I see it in myself I read differently than I did 40 years ago I read more fragmented and and I still read a lot and I make a conscious effort to actually hold books in my hand because I think there's something valuable in that but um, it's uh, it's uh, it's something that that is quickly disappearing. We are like in a post-literate society of some form, and I have likened this the role of theater art, serious serious, what I think of as serious theater, as kind of being like the monks out in the desert who. Um, preserved wisdom in the scrolls they buried away in caves. Um, the, you are the keepers of wisdom for the future because today there is almost no way to actually practice this stuff, except perhaps in things like podcasts. And uh, there is, a, there is a, uh, a, a, what's the word I'm looking for, egalitarian aspect to to the technology that uh, that holds some promise, but it's the system works against it. The system of distribution always works against this. So um, that's that's the general kind of introduction to to all of this. If anybody else wants to to, to chime in, please do. Um, but I think I think in general we're we're trying to define or discover what it is that being uh, a theater artist means anymore, what it means to produce art anymore in a culture that is acutely hostile to art and suspicious of art. I, I just want to throw in, I, yeah. I, I think that art needs to be, theater included, needs to be flattered by the way by the fact that there's such a concerted effort in a sense to prevent it from happening. Because, you know, if, if you think about it, it's really precisely because art has such a kind of powerful transformative capacity. And the, the sort of, you know, the culture that we live in is, is dead set against any kind of 
meaningful change. And in that, it's just doing what systems in general do, which is to kind of preserve their form. Right. And, um, you know, so in a sense, you know, these episodes where, you know, culture encounters or new, new work encounters, encounters tremendous obstacles can be viewed as a prelude to another out, out, outbreak of innovation and like, uh, you know, transformation. Really. And I, I sense that that's coming. Things are getting so. We've been talking about this for a long time, John. Right. right. You know, the rivets are getting the rivets are popping. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, I think. Yeah. No, I think this is true, and it's interesting because just apropos of this, and this is a sort of sidebar digression, and I don't want to digress too far. But Oliver Stone gave an interview the other day, and one can say a lot of things about Oliver Stone, um, and yet. Uh, he talked about the way in which um, anything produced in Hollywood can no longer criticize the military or the police. And we know that you know, CIA, Homeland Security, provide advisors to nearly every drama that appears on television. And pretty much Hollywood produces recruitment dramas for the military. These are films and television shows that, that serve as recruitment to the military. Um, and you cannot find in, in the protagonists of nearly every drama on television, they always invariably contain a backstory in which that, that person served in the military. Um, it is a sign of, of virtue, it is a signifier for heroism and integrity and virtue. And there is nothing ever uttered about U.S. foreign policy, about the violence of the U.S. state against the global South, nothing of that. The, the anti-communism, we were talking about Roy Cohen earlier, um, the documentary Where Is My Roy Cohen, um, is very worth watching because it touches upon, and it's a direct link to Trump, and it touches upon the way in which um, that post-World War II um, uh, you know, obsession with stopping the communist threat uh, pretty much shaped foreign policy in the United States since, uh, for yes. over half a century. And uh, it is also worth noting, again, just as a sidebar, that as vile as Trump is, the Democratic Party is no different. I mean, much of what Trump is doing is just an intensification of Obama's policies and his was an intensification of Clinton's and Bush's policies. U.S. foreign policy never changes. And, um, it, and that, that foreign policy was shaped right after World War II. Um, and it, it has not wavered. So uh, what happened after Vietnam, and it's interesting when we speak of this culturally and artistically, the 60s, was a moment of social transformation, and it was legitimate. The anti-war movement actually helped bring an end to the war. Um, but the state recognized the power of the alternative press. People like that wrote for the Detroit Free Press, the LA Free Press, all of these things were, a, were significant voices of dissent at that time. And there is nothing like that now. The state closed ranks and said, okay, <clears throat> we're not going to allow any more alternative press. We're going to disappear those people. And um, criticism 
of the military and foreign policy is going to be rendered invisible. It's just going to be disappeared. If you go back and look at uh, the, the famous or the infamous Powell memo, you know, the yeah. Chief Justice Powell, before he became for the Business Roundtable, I think it was 1972, it's right when uh, Lindsay, the, the Lindsay administration, the Great Society programs began to end. It's also when the banks essentially uh, came to New York City and said, um, we're going to run things now. And, you know, it was this famous event where the city put up bonds and no bankers showed up and then the bankers came with their demands. And that was, and in fact, Trump kind of figured in that whole era yeah. too, very much yeah. so because he took advantage of the tax incentives to do his first towers. I'm just saying, if you look at the, at the, at the Powell memo, it was, it, it was incredibly uh, specific about what needed to be done and who, which voices needed to be uh, suppressed or basically eliminated and how. And it was all done, it was all gonna be done through financial mechanisms, through uh, you know, just tightening the screws on how people earn a living. And you can see how the, you know, the American Academy has s sort of slowly, inexorably trans been transformed into a machine for consent, you know, yeah, for, for, consensus. Um, for generating consent. Well, or I mean, ruling the, class policies, you know, the, in the guise of being rebellious still, of course, you know. The links, there are tentacles here. We can make all kinds of connections with Reagan's presidency and the destruction of unions. Um, if you look at, because the state really took hold of and decided to infiltrate Hollywood, um, that was kicked into hyperdrive under Bill Clinton's presidency, by the way. But... Um, uh, you can see the way that uh, the films that were made in Hollywood in the 60s and 70s were still in some degree, to use a, a Kaye de Cinema term, I mean, they were still auteur efforts. You had films, everything from Point Blank to Who'll Stop the Rain to Night Moves to the countless of the Cutter's Way. And look at the films, The Conversation. And look at the films that came out of the 80s, uh, and there was a profound shift. You look at the most popular films of the 70s, just Google it. Look at the most popular films of the 80s, Google it, and you will see a difference. What happened was um, stuff like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Sixteen Candles and all of these things became... The studio saw, ah, this is the blueprint. And of course, the famous, we've all talked about this, but the famous Friedkin um, moment in 1977 when he released Sorcerer the same week as Star Wars. And Sorcerer was supposed to be the first of a trilogy, and it's a bit of a masterpiece still when you look at Sorcerer's Friedkin's greatest film. And Friedkin is a most neglected um, film artist, I think. But... Sorcerer was a box office flop. Star Wars was a cultural phenomenon. And ever since in the studio went, aha, we are doing things the George Lucas way from now on. And it was also a further step in infantilizing the society. It was things have gotten now, of course, just extraordinarily childish. Everything that comes out of Hollywood is more and more rudimentary and simplistic and childish. Um, but, but, Sorcerer marked the end of O2 or films, in a sense. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I was thinking about, you know, the auteur, the, the Tarantino, because I know you want to talk about the Tarantino and the, the, um, 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I was thinking about, you know, there is something about Tarantino, you know, he has a kind of auteur feel, but, and, and, and there's something about that that I value him. In fact, you and I saw Jackie Brown together, I think, years ago, and that's a film that I quite like. But I was thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was thinking, you know, what he's nostalgic, what he's, he's an auteur of film marketing. <laughs> like, what he's really interested in is the marketing of film in the 1960s. That's really what, right. in a sense, no, you know, the, the trailers and the mm -hmm. costumes, you know, just the sort of art direction of it. And the, you know, well, he's and, valorizing the, you know, the flotsam <laughs> and jetsam of, of a consumer the kitschy, society. Yeah, the yeah. kitsch yeah. of that and time. Kitsch, and that's yeah. a topic that warrants um, discussion too, because the rise of a kitsch ethos is really important. What were you gonna say? Oh no, I was just gonna, I, I, I was chiming in only to say that it sounded right and that I didn't, you know, I hadn't thought about that, that, that we hadn't, that the, the, that was the point where American film stopped having an auteur you know, presence in that way. Um, so that's all I was just Well, yeah, and, and, and he's stone. John Borman was interviewed not terribly long ago, um, five or ten years ago, but, and he said a film like Point Blank could not right. possibly get made today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it couldn't. I mean, Point Blank remains one of the great American films, I think, and yet um, it's something you could not bring to a studio today or, or to you know, any producer and have them take you seriously for, for even a minute. Um, so, and, yeah. And the loss of the, uh, you know, the auteur-driven film, of course, coincides with corporations taking over movie studios, right? So you have less, you have the Sonys, um, you know, you have bankers essentially making aesthetic decisions about what people are supposed to watch and algorithms now, and, and that's what's driving content. Yeah, algorithms, that's a discussion as well. Um, because I think intersecting this, what we're kind of laying out is this timeline template, what intersects at a certain point is the rise of social media. And, um, and it intersects in marketing too, the algorithms where everybody experiences this constantly. Do one search for, I did a search um, for the difference between Sig Sauer's and Glocks because I was writing, <laughs> I was writing something. One lousy search, <laughs> and I'm inundated with advertisements and articles on the best concealed carry weapon of 2020. I don't want, but 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 so that that distortion that those simple algorithms, and we're talking about a very simple algorithm um, for consumers. The distortions inherent in that can be extrapolated outward. As oh, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, the is way those the way those algorithms work, as far as I understand it, is that they favor startle emotions, which are you know fear, anger, envy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very antisocial emotions. So what happens is you have a community form around like Black Lives Matter. So it's it, it, it's a community that's coming together to protest a social issue. And the algorithms start to kick in and all those media posts start to go to people who are racist on some level because that's what drives the hits that generate the advertising revenue. And so it's this vast machine for kind of generating and cultivating antisocial emotions in, in the culture that just is, is working 24-7 
And if you do this little experiment on a society for 10 years, who do you think <laughs> is going to be in the most powerful position? Mm -hmm. The embodiment of those antisocial <laughs> emotions, of course. And, uh, you know, and then you think, well, this is really just a version of like an exaggerated software version of how capitalism in general works. Because it's all about generating startle impulses to buy shit that you don't need, right? Well, this is, you know, the attention economy, the so-called attention economy is also, uh, the terrific book 24-7 uh, talks about the, the, uh, the strategies uh, and tactics employed by these mass telecoms and things like Google and Facebook and so on to um, capture your attention regardless of anything else because that's generating that's generating revenue on some level um, yeah. but it is an a you know you coined it a, a an alienation machine and that's what social media is it also uh, <laughs> just inherently discourages uh, text um, you know, Instagram and, it and Twitter and... It discourages social emotion. Now, you, you know, McNamee, this guy Roger McNamee, who was one of the first advisors to Zuckerberg, says, you know, he's like on a campaign because he knows exactly what's going on. He's terrified about what this is doing. And he says, you know, look, the chemical industry used to be hugely profitable and then we decided it wasn't okay to dump a bunch of mercury in the waterways and have a bunch of birth defects and so, and so forth. And so now it's not quite so, it's not so profitable, but you still, there's no problem. There's, it's still profitable. And this is what, and he's like, we can set these algorithms to generate other things too. They, you know, this is something that we could intervene in. Right. And yeah, it wouldn't be as profitable, but you know, like how much sleep am I going to lose if Zuckerberg is making, you know, right. a little less right. money? Yeah. I, like, you know. No, it, it, mm. it's, um, it's also, if it, to go back to like contemporary film for a second, we talked about Tarantino, the, the films that are popular right now that are, you know, valorized now. It's interesting, it's something like the Academy Awards. Nobody that I know with even a modicum of intelligence has ever taken the Academy Awards seriously. It's not, it's, a, it's studio um, driven marketing. But people do take it seriously and they pay attention to it and they go, oh gosh, this was ignored and somebody was snubbed. I mean, it's just a preposterous, <coughs> a preposterous um, model for discussion. But uh, a film like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Guy Ritchie's new film that I had the misfortune to see the other day, <laughs> um, two hours of my life I will never get back. Um, the Gentleman um, is essentially a film about eyeglass frames. Uh, it is, everybody has a bespoke frame. These are supposed to be Cockney gangsters, and t but they're all wearing like $1,000 eyeglass frames. Uh, and, and besides the fact that we are meant to believe that Matthew McConaughey went to Oxford, um, the absurdities just pile up endlessly and it is the but the other thing is we talk about infantilization this is a witless film it's a grotesquely overwritten film and it's it's a exercise in Guy Ritchie narcissism on some level perhaps it is an auteur film 
Um, the same way that Joker, in a sense, Todd Phillips thinks of as an auteur film because he sees himself as a maligned comic genius that wasn't appreciated. So he gets his revenge through this origin story of Joker. What's interesting about that, and I'm jumping around, but what's interesting about Joker is that the origin of Gotham is never investigated. <laughs> the social forces, the social context, the historical context of Gotham that created this dystopia is never addressed. It's just a dystopia that fell from the sky and exists. The other thing that is problematic about all the franchise, the, the Marvel and DC comic franchises, is that um, the dystopia that's presented is never as bad as the dystopia we all live in. Gotham <laughs> is not nearly as bad as 2020 Los Angeles. Um, and that's one of the problems. That's one of the inherent um, um, distortions in, in these and of course, Joker is besides that a hideously reactionary film, um, the way all Batman um, franchise products are um, uh, Valentines to, to vigilantism. Uh, but, but beyond that, it is also an extraordinarily derivative film. Like Tarantino, Todd Phillips is borrowing. I mean, there are scenes lifted from other movies from French Connection. I mean, it's directly yeah. lifted from, from a dozen other films, and you, can, you could probably go through and pick them and, and identify them. Um, yet nobody knows this. Such is the depth of the reference deficit in contemporary public audiences uh, that, that people don't know this. I mean, if you, if you took a poll of... Um, audiences coming out of Joker, or the people in the Academy even, who vote on this. 84% white males still, by the way, the people who vote on the Academy Awards. Um, I doubt many of them even remember French Connection. Mm. So it's a, it's a moot point in a way. So Hollywood has for quite a while made movies about Hollywood. They made movies about making movies. It's a closed system. I remember when, um, what's his name, made in that science fiction, the guy who did uh, Slumdog Millionaire, um, he made this science fiction film, the title of which completely escapes me. But it was... they were Oil Sunshine? Yeah, Sunshine. They were going... To the sun. To the right. sun. The whole film looked as if it was shot in a screening room for dailies. Um, right. The sun was... Was, you know, that was it. And, and so it was a movie about how you get a movie made, essentially. Suddenly, Tarkovsky makes, you know, Solaris. Solaris. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> this is a long way. Sunshine is a long way from Solaris. Solaris is a kind of fantastic film. Yeah. And, and those kinds of films, though, are, are, you know, largely forgotten. I said something to somebody the other day, a really young, bright, um, student of the arts and erstwhile artist and I said something about well it's like the 400 blows and they had no idea what I was talking about yeah. now that seemed shocking to me but I when I taught at the Polish National Film School for six years and uh, I would ask first year students what were their favorite films 
Rarely did I get answers um, that were films older than five or six years, maybe 10 years. Maybe they would say The Godfather. That was like an ancient, you know, nobody watched 1940s noir, nobody watched German expressionism, silent film. Um, it was just stunning. And these, are, these were students that came to an international film school to be filmmakers. That's what they wanted to do. So you wondered what drove that ambition exactly. Um, because they, they knew precious little about the history of film. But that's part of, again, the sort of loss of devaluing, official devaluing of memory in, in um, the Western American, certainly, consciousness. Um, you, you, just, you just don't get those discussions very much. So, um, you know, something like Tarantino, uh, and it's funny that the criticism of his latest film, Once Upon a Time Out, the people who didn't like it always dislike it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> there was a line in it where, uh, uh, what's his name, Brad Pitt says to DiCaprio, put on your sunglasses, you don't want the Mexicans to see you crying. That was maybe the only funny line in the movie. Um, this is racist. Well, okay, but you're kind of missing the forest for the trees here, guys. Um, the whole enterprise is white supremacist from the beginning. Tarantino's <laughs> worldview. It's totally, is, it totally is. Yeah. It's, it's total nostalgia for, you know, yeah. this white male, you know, era where, you know, it's a MAGA right. film. It has to be understood as a yeah. MAGA film. Yeah. I mean, for sure. It is, yeah. You know, we're so, you know, it's just. Look at the scene with the, the Bruce Lee. Killing the, dirty, killing the dirty hippies at the end. Because right. they, you know. Killing the dirty hippies <laughs> and that, that fraudulent Chinese martial artist, Bruce Lee, yeah. got his ass kicked by this has-been stand-in stunt double. Um, that's, you know, that's killed, who killed his wife. Who, who killed his wife with a, with a spear gun. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so it's yeah, it's 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 very hard to to talk about Tarantino without also discussing Tarantino can't you know, tell a story. His connection to Harvey Weinstein was really pretty incidental. I mean, it didn't, <laughs> he didn't share any of those attitudes. No, no, but he can't on a technical level. He can't tell a story, and but what has happened is his inability to tell a story has been repeated so often yeah. and it's normalized as now a conscious style choice. Right. This is the Tarantino way of telling a story. Right. The fucking movie is three hours long. You know, this so, is why I like Jackie Brown, because it's... Jackie it's Brown, I like... So it's like more yeah. Yeah. Right, so it yeah. has that frame. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but but it's... it's those That's a, that's a model of this... The, the, the normalizing of certain things. And you see it in television, certainly, with the, the military and the police uh, validation that goes on constantly. I, I defy you to find a cop show, the cop series franchise on television, in which there isn't at least twice a season a storyline around the killing of a cop and how this is mm -hmm. the most egregious of sins. A homeless person dies, well, you know, collateral damage, who cares? Um, shoot a cop, 
and this is like the ultimate sin and there's a great deal of sentimental um, you know uh, operatic sort of angst and and uh, tragic um, mock kitsch tragic uh, uh, storytelling that, that that goes around this event and um, serves to to imprint very clearly that the police are of special value. This is in a society in which this the police, a newly militarized police, serve as like a sadistic occupying army in poor neighborhoods across the country. How many unarmed black men were shot, black women too, were shot last year? Like 700 mm -hmm. or something? And yet, you know, um, very few of those policemen were ever punished for that. Um, but Hollywood is indifferent to that sort of reality. And you can't, as Oliver Stone said, you can't make a film or a TV show that would address that issue. Well, this is just to bring it back to theater. This is what is so, this is what is so remarkable about theater is that it is, and also so inconvenient, is that it's not commodifiable, really. And it's also uh, tremendously inconvenient. You know, it doesn't surrender to convenience, you know, it's, and yet at the same time it gives you, I mean, and, and this was very true in LA theater for the time that I've been here since the early 90s, where you have complete freedom expressively, more or less, because it's simply not a part of the, uh, of the monetary economy, of the exchange economy. Yeah. And that's not in any meaningful way. And even that has become much more difficult uh, to do Really? Well, when we began doing theater, when I started doing theater in the 1980s, um, we did theater for no money. Uh, there were enough small equity waiver houses, you put together $500 maybe. <laughs> and the, the, those small equity waiver houses cast, were run, yeah, right. the cast, were run by people that cared about art. Diana Gibson, Diana yeah. Gibson, and and Scott Kelman, and all right. of these um, these people who have long since passed, but they cared about art, and so they wanted you to put this up, and you had total freedom. And when we did the Shaper, I've told this story a lot. I mean, we we changed theaters, we ran for six months, and we essentially, effectively sold out for six months. That's impossible today. So that audience has disappeared the audience for that kind of theater. Part of it is, I am convinced, just how difficult it is to get around Los Angeles anymore. Traffic jams stand between you and, and you said this the other day, stand between you and getting to the theater. Um, but those theaters have disappeared. And when they squashed the equity waiver um, model, uh, they effectively killed that freedom that existed. Um, it's, it's also true, John, you know, it's the, I mean, all sorts of things. It's like a, it's an ecosystem in collapse, right? The cultural ecosystem is in collapse because, you know, if you go, there's no more press, there's no more art press, mm -hmm. there's no more, um, there's no place you can go to find like really interesting discourse about the arts. You know, I, I went back recently and I was looking at reviews of some of your work because I was writing about Storyland. And I went back and read some of the reviews from the late 1980s. I could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. Not that it was so remarkable, but and I remembered it. I remembered, yeah. of course, being 
And it would, but it, what could... was what was shocking was how you know we've all been you know we all know the parable of the boiled frog you know it, it, it's a very advanced condition now you know we're we're really fully boiled as you know <laughs> yeah. I mean I just, we really are and it's it's really kind of one amazing. specific thing about those reviews is just that you could get an inkling as to what John was doing like you could you you could read something and get at least an idea of what the artist was trying to accomplish where now that even the descriptive you know, uh, things that reviewers will toss off, don't eat, don't give us any, they do everything they can to block us up from what the artist is actually trying to accomplish or Absolutely. what they, or well, what they think, have in common with other reviewers, critics what, who became reviewers, um, became consumer advocates. Right. So yeah. they're writing about theater, but mm -hmm. they could just as well be reviewing a restaurant or you're not, you know, if you like scrambled eggs this way, yeah. this place will serve it for you. Yummy or patootie. Right. If, if yeah. something is a little challenging, well, you should avoid this, you know, this well, is this not is the, for right, everyone. And, and this is, this gets into that issue. This is like, you know, the difference between art and entertainment, which everybody always stumbles about. And I just think it has to do with the intention of the person making it. Is their intention to wake us up to something or to put us to sleep or keep us asleep? And I think viewing it that way solves a lot of problems. You can certainly be entertaining as an artist or you can be artistic, as, you know, but it, what's your intention really? And then it becomes this issue of, with the art object, it does not matter. It really doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Right. <clears throat> it really doesn't matter. It's about, I, it's about, you know, it's an intimate relationship and it transforms you and you can like it or not, it's going to change you and then it becomes part of your life. Well, I have said this for years and I've said it to students when I was teaching. I said, it doesn't matter to me whether you like something. Because if you show a film, I remember showing films to students, say, okay, the comments. Well, I kind of liked it, I kind of liked it. No, I don't care if you liked it. What did you see? And and then let's talk about. I, I have a I have a story. An anecdote. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine who actually served in the military was reading uh, Blood Meridian, and he hated it. He hated the whole thing. He um, he finished it. Couldn't believe he was outraged by it. Threw it at a friend. Said, "You want to read the worst novel you ever you ever read?" <laughs> a year later, he's in a, a a psychological assessment of some for a job, and they ask him, "What's your favorite novel?" Blood Meridian. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, he and I, I completely understood yeah, those sure. those works of art that you hate and you argue with them, and you and you just you talk about you badmouth them to everybody, and then at some point you realize. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, Moby Dick always comes to mind when we talk, in, you know, which Blood Meridian links to rather directly. Um, and people say, I, you know, I've tried to read more. It's so boring. And there's, you know, but somebody said, I should just skip over those two chapters about, you know, Whaling, the history of yeah. whales yeah. and stuff because they're outdated anyway. I said, no, 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 you've so <laughs> missed the point. Um, it's not an entertaining novel, you know. That's not what Melville was trying to do. He was not trying to entertain anybody. Um, but, you know, Moby Dick, of course, at the time was an enormous failure and got bad reviews and went out of print very quickly. It survived only because I think Hawthorne promoted... Well, this um, is always the way it works. You know, this is, a, and of course, the poster child is Van Gogh. Never sells a painting, but... Once he painted, you couldn't pick up a brush 
and not deal with him one way or the other. Right. What he had done with color and line and what he had done. And then inexorably he moves to the center of culture, not because of critics or the public or gallery owners, but because of young artists. Right. And it's the same thing with Melville. You can't read Melville as a writer and not be influenced and not change. And then it moves to the center of the culture and it becomes something that nobody can ignore. Yeah, that's a very interesting, that's a very interesting discussion because you also look at like Beckett, you could say the same about Absolutely Beckett. Beckett has changed things, Pinter changed things. Um, those guys, and Genet probably too. Um, and uh, yet they are still, the general population still finds them not entertaining and rather difficult. Um, but they have been validated and they've become part of the canon, so somehow... It's very specific. Check this out. You got Endgame, 57. Misanthropic uh, patriarch in an armchair with his, you know, somewhat son, possible adopted son. Pinter, a few years later, inspired by the play, makes Homecoming. You have Max and his sons. Misanthropic, uh, uh, mis misanthropic patriarch in an armchair. A few years later, you get uh, Till Death Us Do Part, which was this television series that ran forever that was about an East End misanthropic patriarch in an armchair <laughs> berating his son-in-law, which Norman Lear bought and made into uh, All in the Family, Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker. Misanthropic patriarch in an armchair with his his son-in-law, who he's berating constantly. And then that becomes Homer Simpson mm. and every other mm. misanthropic. And what it's really about is dethroning the great white patriarch, really. Right. You know, and that's, that's how great. Beckett transforms like popular culture. It's through right. artists. That so, yeah. so where are the Becketts, the Pinters, the Sarah Canes now? Is, it, is there a sense of defeat that the creators don't want to do that? I mean, you know, is, is the, the environment, the mechanism, if you're talking about big theaters, hostile to new work? I mean, if you look at the big theaters here in Los Angeles, we're, there's no new work. We're getting New York productions, I think. Sting's rehearsed new in New York. There's no, yeah, right, right. That are so even rehearsed in New York. There's no homegrown. Well, I think that it's very hard. I mean, this goes back to the very beginning of what we were talking about here. It's very hard to learn how to be a playwright. People think and are told, well, you have to you know, <clears throat> sign up for an MFA program. Mm. And um, uh, and the answer is, of course, if you really want to be a playwright, do not go to an MFA program because they are designed to kill any kind of real creativity or, or vision you have about the theater. They're going to teach you to be, you know, a, a formulaic writer of a certain kind of a play that reinforces the the values and the beliefs of the ruling class essentially um, because the values of any society trickle down from the ruling class and and that's what we're seeing so i don't know what you do um as as somebody who loves theater is has been moved by seeing something and on some rare occasions and that's ever harder to do and you want to be a theater artist um, I guess you join the Stepling workshops, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, but there may be other places, but there are very few places that do well, this because what we are doing here, what we're talking about is saying, um, 
you're not going to have a career. You know, keep your job as a plumber because you're not going to have a career. That's off the table now. That's a non-starter. But if you want to make art, if that means something to you, then, you know, you have to find new strategies and create a new context. And you also have to participate in the education of a new audience. And that's a, that's a monumental task. But I think it's a really important one. If you talk about, we're talking about the critics that were so much better in the 80s. And I used to complain about Dan Sullivan and Sylvie Drake all the time. But my God, one wishes they, somebody of that caliber were still around. Uh, because indeed, that, that sort of public discourse you know, about the arts is, mm -hmm. is all but disappeared now. I think about all the people. Wes, you, you hold a, a, a weekly workshop. You hear all sorts of new stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't hear that anymore myself. I used to do similar workshops, but I don't right now. What are you hearing? Well, I, I, people are still energized and still trying, and, this, and, and um, they're frustrated by the same thing that Chris uh, indicated, that they don't really know how to get their things alive and staged. And the more interesting and subversive their subject matter, the harder it is for them to figure out how to get it done, where to start. Um, I think I, I, what uh, last week, John, I mentioned something about kind of preparing the ground or Lex and John in a conversation talked about uh, that. And I, it's, it's, that's the way I kind of think of those workshops is that we're trying to, we're, we're building uh, we're, we're building a space for the things to actually happen that just can't happen right now. That well, maybe, you know. <laughs> I used to tell students, and I, mean, I still do tell students, look, if you have a class of 15 people, there's probably three of you with talent. Um, because I actually think talent is a thing. Um, and I actually have come to the conclusion that some people are simply born with talent. And I don't know what that is, but... But the other 12 or 13 people in that class, I hope they will become an informed, intelligent audience. They will help be produce plays. They will create a discourse in public about the arts. Um, you know, and we could, the, the things we're talking about here with film and, and theater, um, could be extended to painting and, and sculpture and all kinds of other uh, mediums as well. I mean, America has, when abstract expressionism happened uh, in the late 40s on through the 50s, and everybody is familiar with the CIA story, they tried to co-opt it and they did use it as part of a, um, a propaganda campaign to prove American freedom against the stifling um, authoritarian Soviet empire and so forth. But it had little to no effect on the artists, all of whom actually were Marxist immigrants, most of them, Jewish, um, Armenian. And, uh, those guys were all very subversive and they gave money to the civil rights movement. They were very active. And it's a shame when they get tinged with this CIA um, um, uh, tag because it's simply not true. And the same thing happened with the Iowa Writers' Workshop. The CIA infiltrated that. They were, and yet, 
people like Dennis Johnson and Flannery O'Connor and they came out of there and was rife with with subversives and um, socialists and all kinds of um, you know malcontents so the state in a sense failed in those endeavors to co-opt artistic movements the art survived and and thrived in a sense um, so uh, American the American public goes, oh, well, yes, a Jackson Pollock or a Mark Rothko today sells for millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars. And they hang in the, you know, uh, offices of CEOs for major banks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everywhere you will see, oh, you know, how prestigious he has a Rothko on the wall. Um, and yet, people in general have continued this American distrust of abstraction. And you can, you can transfer this to theater too, in a sense. You know, a certain kind of representational theater still makes people feel more comfortable. Abstraction doesn't. People are hostile to it because America has always, always valorized virtuosity. If somebody takes a pencil and draws a perfect representation of, you know, uh, Union Station in Los Angeles, and people will applaud that. But if they look at a Kenneth Nolan, they go, oh, yeah, my kid could do that. Mm. Philip Guston. Yeah, well, or, except your kid didn't do that, right. you know. And you no, know, actually, your kid couldn't do that. Um, and if you can't tell the difference, if you don't understand why Nolan is a major artist, then we're going to have to go back to you know, the very beginning here and educate you in the arts because um, virtuosity leads you to Norman Rockwell. <laughs> it doesn't lead you to Mark Rothko or, you know, any number of Marco Torelli or the people who are active today um, that, are, that are of great value in painting. Uh, and it's the same infiltration of a medium by academia. Uh, by gallery owners, curators, all of these people work in unison to choose certain things that they deem, you know, saleable. There's a good essay by Jerry Satz, is it, Katz? Um, uh, called Zombie Formalism. It's a really good essay on what has happened to American abstract painting. Uh, but, but the point is that, that when you when you desire to create work that is demanding and difficult and serious, this goes back to your, your point about intention. If you have a serious intention, uh, you're going to be shunned, you're going to be suspect, and you're going to be marginalized somehow because seriousness is anathema to this infantile culture in which we live, in which a Quentin Tarantino is talked about as a serious artist. Guy Ritchie is talked about as a serious artist. Yeah. Uh, these are infantile products uh, that are very easily consumed and very easily digested and very easily forgotten. And that's the other thing. The, the more forgettable the work you create, the more likely you are to have it rewarded somehow. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen... This is the placebo art. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I, if, you, if you ask someone, uh, name me a significant play that came out of an MFA program, 
I don't think anybody can do that. They might have some they like, I don't know. I can't remember any that I've seen. I can't remember them. I don't remember the titles, I don't remember the author, I don't remember yeah. anything about it. Uh, but that's why it got made. That's why it appeared on a main stage somewhere. Because you know, just a, a weird sidebar connecting art and theater. I don't know if you noticed, there's a almost a formula for a prestige play that I've noticed where you have a group of people gathering for a dinner or something over one night. I'm thinking of Yasmin Reza's art, Disgraced, and there's an art object in the middle of it that they discuss or don't understand. And you see that thing repeated over and over. Disgraced was another play, I don't know if you saw yeah. it on the taper. It's the same thing. And I, you know, I, I don't know if that comes out of MFA, but it's almost like an algorithm for a play that will get a lot of attention and get yeah, a production. To dis, to dis art, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's to reject and defame the artistic dimension of theater. Because, but it, and it's very true, right? It's, it's very true. America, Americans in general want to be protected from art because art is the real threat. Right. You know, when, when you are participating in a, you know, a complete collapse and a complete regression, the last thing you want is to be woken up to that fact. Right. And you deserve to be protected because uh, that's just way too traumatic. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> art, is the, art is the villain in the piece. Yeah, yeah. art yeah. is the yeah. villain yeah. That to be, and everyone is so, the audience is so grateful <laughs> when the art object is defaced yeah, right. so yeah. that you, you weren't, you weren't incapable of understanding. You weren't lesser than. You weren't. You aren't. You don't live in a world in which there are some questions that don't have easy answers. You don't live in a world in which some problems do not uh, cannot be solved. Right. You don't live in a world where you will die. Right. You don't live in a world where you'll get sick and not know what to well, do. Well, this is this no, is a, a society of securitization. You know, it, it's a risk-averse, mass-securitized, mass-surveillance state in which people have been John, you say that beaten it's, it's, on about this constantly. That it's all for your own but good. It's both that, and it's a, and it's a society of utter precarity. Yeah, where well, there, the where reality, everything is totally risk-based, and you've taken on so much risk that you can't begin to take on a little bit more, especially vis-a-vis right. -vis other people. Right. You know, it's, it's well, really a pathology this, of... This leads us directly to, I mean, because this is very apropos of the, the durability and popularity of zombie franchises, of mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic film, and all of which are reconstruction dramas, and all of which I'm absolutely convinced are popular because people desire apocalypse. Absolutely. Mm. Because they completely cannot, no longer deal with that precarity. And we see this in homelessness. A great many homeless people want to be on the street because they, they don't want to be sent in anxiety, back into right. the bureaucracy that breeds right. anxiety and, right. and certain kind of regimentation and obligation, all of which they don't feel they can meet any longer. And uh, if you look at the, these dystopian films, these post-apocalyptic films, the zombie franchise, they're also, they're, 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 they're over-determined um, because they are also expressions of ruling class anxiety about the poor. The zombies are always the mass of the proletariat somehow that should be eradicated and gotten rid of. But people desire the end 
And these, these films also become about real estate. Um, the Will Smith. What a great opportunity! I am, yeah, no, but it's true. I am Legend. Was that the title? Right. The Will Smith. That was a film about real estate. Mm. Yeah. You know, he got to pick. I'll take that. Uh, you know, brownstone in Washington Square Park. This, this is like. Yeah. yeah. And this it's, is like Trump's response to the coronavirus. This is going to be very good for us. Yeah. 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 You know, so, so they look at beachfront property in uh, Taiwan. You know, if this goes right. <laughs> so, the show, The Walking Dead, arguably one of the most successful shows of all time. I don't know it's ten seasons now. Has it set in Georgia, and people visit it and want to go there? You know, because it's attractive. To your point about yeah, you know, no, people love yeah. the, what's interesting or not um, about things like The Walking Dead um, or any of the thousand. Um, post-apocalyptic films and TV that have come out is that water and sewage is never discussed, you know, mm. because that's what you probably would really have to deal with on a daily <laughs> basis. If it's just taking a walk in the woods and killing a zombie or two, sure, sign me up because this sounds like a very carefree life and we can go back to some, you know, Edenic, um, Idyllic. This is why I like Parasite. Yes, I, I was going to say, I, it I, figures greatly I, in Parasite. I, I mean, I, I was on the fence about it, and it was about to get really... I was like, come on, I'm really bored. And then the maid shows up, and it <laughs> yeah. gets really interesting. And then they had that great sequence where they, the family gets yeah. evicted from the house, and they go down yeah. into yeah. the toilet, essentially, yeah. where yeah. they live. Which is not in The Joker. You know, there's not that there's kind not. of stuff. There's not. And it's, it's art-directed squalor, which is not what we see in L.A. Which right. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember the um, Hurricane Katrina and the people that were, you know, um, stuck at the Astrodome. You know, the, the one thing everyone remembers was the smell. Because the toilets were backed up, they didn't work. Nobody knew what to do increasingly with the huge amount of waste that was piling you know, up. The, mm. the shit of poor people smells really much, much worse. <laughs> 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 My but, shit is... But that's, that's, you know, and where the water comes from to brush your teeth is beyond me in any of these discussions. I mean, water would be an acute problem, obviously. Mm that house in Washington Square Park wouldn't have running water and it wouldn't have electricity sitting there watching television. And you always see this, same with, they even to the extent where wherever one of these characters is, they always have Wi-Fi if it's, if it's you know, a survival of saga. I think, oh boy, sign me up for who your provider is because I don't get Wi-Fi like that. Um, it, people want, the apocalypse as long as they get to carry their privilege with them somehow mm -hmm. um, and they don't have to actually live the way poor people live today the way this massive global population of the underclass has to live um, and and it's just it's just part of I mean we see today and this is a slight sidebar digression I mean you see in the climate discourse and everybody should read Corey Morningstar's Wrong Kind of Green um, because she's done extraordinary research but you see the way in which this becomes um, a project of the the ruling class of billionaires and jillionaires and what drives much of it is yes they want to 
monetize nature and they want to buy nature so they can control nature. But along with it is a eugenicist subplot about depopulation because they're always constantly talking about overpopulation. There is no overpopulation. In fact, there's a demographic collapse globally except for one part of Africa that has high birth rates. Everywhere else, birth rates have fallen off the cliff. Um, but it's fear of a dark planet. You know, it's fear of a black, brown, Asian, yellow planet. Um, you know, people like David Attenborough want a planet of people like him. And um, they will sell this as eco-friendly. I mean, we're rapidly approaching Soylent Green in some sense. Um, Jonathan Swift meets Soylent Green. Anyway, in the end of that sidebar. But these kinds of this kind of disinformation, this kind of propaganda in, infiltrates the entire consciousness of, um, of the society and it be, starts to become reflected in the products that they produce um, in, in Hollywood and on stages. And again, though, with theater, um, it's very hard because there is, in fact, so little theater. There is proportionately um, an, an extremely small amount of theater being produced compared to, say, 50 years you know, ago. Some of it is, 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 you know, just the thing about, because I was thinking about media and film, which I love, you know, of course love, and I'm always interested in taking a certain kind of theater aesthetic and trying to find a corollary in, in, in something that can be distributed on the web and all that stuff. But the truth about being in the audience of a theater piece is that Especially the way this particular aesthetic and you know your plays, John, very much bring you. They bring you into your body in a way that is very difficult because we're all these things, these devices, mm -hmm. these iPhones and stuff, put us way up in our heads, yeah. and it's it's really painful to come down and feel yourself breathing and feel that kind of meditative presence of your own, the weight of your own mortality, very well, confusing stuff, nobody's ever had an answer for it, you know, that's really the... And know. I think we're in, like, now probably the third generation of screen damage. Yeah, and you see people, you see people, we used to see it when we'd see audiences come in, 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 you know, when we were doing stuff at Glaxa and Silver Lake and stuff, and you'd see people come in and, like, there's a sense that they're just, they weren't prepared for this, it's a little much. Yeah. And they don't know, they appreciate it and they recognize it's put them in touch with something, but then they got to go back out into the storm, in a sense. Right. Well, I And you've just made them, you know, it's Yeah, it's and I have said that before, that, that one of the failures from the perspective of um, the people who make these decisions, one of the problems is you leave a Guy Ritchie movie and you walk through the mall, you're quite prepared to buy something. Mm. If you leave Endgame, eyeglasses. Probably eyeglasses. <laughs> if you leave Endgame, you don't want to buy anything. You want to mm. walk by yourself alone and think, and that's not good for business. You know, it's just not. So, you know, that continues to to be, I think, a problem. It, is that theater doesn't work as a commercial product? It simply doesn't. And but that presupposes that presupposes that that dream is still 
um, effective. Yeah, and it and, and I think it's breaking really, down. I yeah. think it. I mean, I, I think it's breaking down. So the people. I mean, usually what what heralds like a new period of really vibrant art is a historical cataclysm, unfortunately, mm. because it's the you know those things are linked, right? We forget the things that we should be remembering, and suddenly we get really really out of balance, and there's a ter- terrible stuff happens, and then we you know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's a content arms race right now, right? Like, just the volume of stories being told, you know, between the streaming services and networks and everything else. It's just, there's so many stories. And why has theater been left behind? Like, why aren't, why isn't there a same push for original content on stage as there is for, you know, on screens? And I'm curious how much of it is the actual act of going to the theater and how different that is than consuming other forms of media. I read some study that 80% of people when they're watching TV are also on their phone at the same time. So when they're absorbing these stories, they're not even absorbing one story. They're no, and the stories are so the stories are so formulaic. Now. Right. So yeah. you can't be on your phone. Yeah. Right. Because right. you know what's going to happen. Not in a play, right? Right. right. And, and, and in a play, you're breaking through that thing. That's that that really, quote. The yeah. first thing an audience is told is turn off your yeah you're in fan, yeah. turn off your phone. That creates its own anxiety. Which is someone's phone going to go off? Which in this day and age is a major source of anxiety totally. for people. Right. Yeah. There, there was a there was a production at, at, at Red Cat of it was it was actually not so good, but it was a reading of The Great Gatsby by Elevator Repair Service. The whole thing was kind of too much, but it was six hours. And the thing was, you had to put your phone down or leave it, you know, you couldn't. And you, what I really sensed in that audience was tremendous relief mm. that yeah. this extractive thing was suddenly quieted for a, for a time. And there was a sense of... <sighs> yeah, there's a, there, is a, there is a tension there. There is a, um, a paradox at the heart of that, too, because I think what we're all saying in terms of attention is when you go to theater, this is a very active, focused attention. You know, you can't talk in the theater, you can't look at your phone, you can't, you know, eat popcorn or drink a Coke. When you go to the movies, we're one step back from that. It's still a dark room and you still can't be too disruptive, but you can sneak a look at your phone (laughs) and you're getting to eat popcorn and stuff. And then when you get to television or watching streaming sites on your computer, you can do six other things and walk away and come back and it's fine. It's a very passive attention. And that's one of the problems with theater is that it is inherently demanding. It's also inherently collective. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. You know, we have all had that experience again and again. It's one of the great things about doing theater in LA, of standing in the back of a theater night after night watching the same actors and the same text affect audiences, different audiences in different ways. Right. And it's such a subtle and intricate kind of chemistry and it's always different, it's fascinating. And it's really in a sense, I think that the focus on the audience and the way in which you become part of a collective body in the audience of watching live theater, that to, to sell that as or, or promote that as what you are actually going to experience. That that's what you're, you're not going to see a play, you're going to become part of an audience of a play. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that that's something that really people uh, actually crave, whether they could put a name to it or not. Well, it's very interesting. Terry Eagleton has an essay in the current, I think it's the current London Review of Books about tragedy. He's reviewing a book um, that came out a compendium on, on a sort of the history of tragedy. 
Um, and he talks about that tragedy for Attic Greek audiences was a completely political um, affair. You registered, if, people, if you were poor, you could draw on a fund that the state provided for people because they wanted people to go and participate in these festivals and sit there as this collective body and watch these dramas. And that, that the message, the idea of tragedy was, and that becomes a very interesting question, why there is no tragedy or is there tragedy? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but uh, that, that this was something, that kind of participation on a level that was integrated with the, the state and with your fellow citizens, that level of project doesn't exist anymore. You know, you, 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 you have to, you know, I mean, Attic tragedy arose right after the period, especially in Athens, of the tyrants. Pisistratos and then his two sons. There's an absolutely chilling parallel between Trump and his two sons and Pisistratos and his two sons. And Aeschylus fought in that civil war. Yeah. And that was the birth of Athenian democracy that we know. And, and, and tragic drama, which was this completely new form, was about the deconstruction of the tyrant. All of those you know, great uh, tragedies are about pulling down and dismembering this tyrant, this uniform, you know, difference, difference triumphing over, over unity, over identity. And it's, I mean, and I would submit, you know, that, that you are a practitioner of tragic drama, John, the, the rest of us also, you know, in, the, in its post-Bakettian mode, really. And I think that is the, the post, that, that is the sort of modern mode of tragic drama. There's, a, there's a really complicated discussion that exceeds the limits of, of a podcast about mimesis in this and Adorno's theory about mimesis which I think is absolutely crucial to understanding anything we're talking about um, and it's in aesthetic theory and this is really dense stuff to, for, for most people to get through I mean for me to get through um, but, it's, but it's very important because it talks about how you experience it in your body that the mimetic impulse but it also raises this issue of the role the stage plays in our own psychic formation that as the infant develops if depending if you follow Winnicott or Lacan or anybody or just Freud there is a kind of er space there the empty stage which is our psychic space in which we re-enact the trauma and, and that's why repetition is so built into theater practice from memorizing lines to rehearsal to watching the same play over and over and over again with different audiences. And repetition, if you follow Freud, is to you know, recreate the trauma again and again and again um, with the idea that somehow mm -hmm. this time we won't miss the train. Um, but But... All of that suggests something very unsettling about our sense of identity. And I think that's just simply another reason no, that theater is so disruptive. Well, the, right, and this is the other thing, right? So, so to go, get back to the social media and, and the internet is mimetic desire. 
And you know, it's absolutely chilling to me that Peter Thiel, who's one of Trump's major yeah, yeah, yeah. advisors, and one of the first investors in Facebook, said he was a student of Rene Girard at Stanford. Stanford. Wow, I didn't know that. He, he recognized, <laughs> he recognized, because he was a student of Girard, he recognized whose theory is about mimetic desire, triangular desire, and the sacrificial crisis. Thiel recognized that Facebook was a mimetic desire machine mm. and therefore was going to be phenomenally successful in a really dark, and he's a, he's a, you know, he's an anarcho, uh, what do you call it, anarcho uh, libertarian. He wants basically, you, you know, he wants apocalypse. Yeah. And he'll, and you know, Girard, of course, is a, an apocalyptic thinker in many ways. Yeah. And, and so you look at Facebook, you think, well, it's constantly generating, again, you know, algorithmically, this state of envy, of mimetic yeah. frenzy. And the whole, the whole country is in this state of exaggerated mimetic frenzy that is absolutely well, it, tilting towards violence, without right, a doubt. But it, because it manufactures aggression as well. Um, Facebook, yeah, yeah is, is a constant you know, click like or dislike. And then in this very limited comment box, you mm -hmm. can say something that because it's so limited is going to be context free inevitably. Um, and it's very hard to work against that. Um, I'm constantly thinking I should deactivate my Facebook account, but I don't because I also have met some great people and we're all aware of it you know, of the danger and people have burnout from it kind of regularly. And even it's, this is even worse with Twitter, which is, you know, a constant stream of aggression that disappears, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, all of this stuff disappears before your very eyes. It's, well, it's, it's ephemeral it's, and yet. It's dopamine. It's, it's, and, and dopamine is always, you know, dopamine is released at the promise of social reward, not the reality of it, right? So, <laughs> so it's this dopamine mechanism, and you know, it, it, of course, these dopamine mechanisms are part of our primate heritage. You know, it's just about primate behavior, really. It's really, and I always think that you know, in some ways, because of you know, if you have any kind of um, practice, part of what the way to understand that is about developing an autonomous, a degree of control over how dopamine is released in your body. So you don't get entrained by, right? You know, to some extent, because I think a lot of this goes back to the birth of metal coinage, which in some ways is an early, it's a symbolic technology that had this huge destabilizing effect when it sprang into the world in three places in 5,000 you know, 5, BC. And it, it transformed, you know, this is where all the Axial Age religions arose in response to the destabilizing effects of yeah. metal coinage as it came into the world. No, and it's why that the stories, narratives that, that revolve around gambling have a certain Absolutely. power. Absolutely. Because there is a magic involved in that that we still don't understand. And, um, you know, this has been written about I mean, a great deal, obviously, but um, that that idea of um, sort of ur-capitalism or something 
is really pernicious. And uh, you know, you know what it gave rise to was the tyrants. Yeah. The tyrants were a new social being sprang up in the wake of metal coinage, who for the first time mm -hmm. could control armies simply because they had mines and they could pay them. It also corresponded. It with wasn't the, that they were, <clears throat> the, you know, the king of this. You know, it wasn't that. It was the, this new social being. It corresponded to the emergence of a priest class as well. In in you know early religions, were individual searches for some mystical experience, and it goes back to the desert fathers that I'm very fond of, and um, <clears throat> and at a certain point, the what we think of as organized religion was just the beginning of a priest class that became the intermediary uh, and squashed that mystical search in a sense. Controlled it. Or mm -hmm. Yeah, and said, no, but this is I, you know. And you're right that Attic Greece was on the cusp of something, the loss of Dionysic energy. Look at the oracles of Delphi and, and various places. Um, those, that, all that Dionysian practice was erased with, with a societal structure that was hierarchical. Yeah. You know, and, and we are so, and that's ex the exchange relation, of, you know, if you follow Marx um, and Adorno and Horkheimer and all of them. Yeah, that, the bureaucratization meant there was an absolute hierarchy. And this is why so much contemporary analysis fails, because it forgets class analysis. You know, you have to remember that some things take place in a class context. And unless you recognize that, your analysis somehow falls short and, and ends up frustrated. Uh, and it's not an accident that, you know, the, the sort of right-wing holders of power and liberals for that matter um, are so, have made class warfare a dirty word. That becomes a pejorative. Oh, is this class warfare? Well, well yes, yes it well, is. Well, like as if, as if there isn't class warfare, warfare happening yeah. right now, it's yeah. just one side. Right, right. Right. No, it's, it's the class warfare of the... 1% against the red or 0.01% whatever against the rest of humanity yeah. that's just vicious and completely effective. No, and, look, you know, we live in a society. Please stand still so I can really you know, <laughs> we fuck live in you a society up. in which there is abundant food and yet there's enormous hunger because farmers are paid to pour milk down the sewer, burn their crops, you know, etc. And this is true pretty much globally. We live in a society in which there is rising acute, catastrophic levels of homelessness and poverty and in acres and acres of unoccupied buildings, you know, with absentee land, investment real estate. Um, in downtown Los Angeles, yeah, right, right near the tent you cities. You can see yeah. tent cities and empty buildings side by side. You know, it's extraordinary. And new buildings, I've noticed all the new condos in Los Angeles in my long walks this last week. Um, there's no entrance at ground level. Mm. You have to go through a security thing, drive your car through a security gate and get in. What you do see through the windows on the ground floor is a washing station for dogs. 
somehow that strikes me as you know a, like a Kafka par parable <laughs> in some sense. Um, but there's no door to get into the building. Um, so it's the irrationality. I mean, this is you know, I'm a big fan of Adorno and and you know the book he wrote with Horkheimer, Dialectic of Enlightenment, is much talked about. But it's a crucial text that the promise of the Enlightenment carried with it barbarism and and the, the mythology that it was supposed to be superseding and stepping out of, and that it has regressed yeah. back to that state of barbarism very quickly. Uh, and part of that is, you know, it's a very long, complicated analysis, but you see it with... Well, it's, um, John, it's really... It, we'll go ahead. Really yeah, no, no, but I mean, you see it with all these these contradictions that are that are evident, you know, everywhere, and with instrumental thinking, which leads us to you know, social media and technology. You know, the, there's, a, there's a very interesting Marxist critic, uh, Mark Schell, I don't know if you know him, wrote a book, very, it's an influential book, Econo The Economy of Literature. And he looks at early Greek philosophy and he says, all the early Greek philosopher, philosophers throughout are using monetary metaphors for truth everywhere, from Heraclitus to Parmenides, everybody. And that's because, in a sense, it was the, the arrival of metal coinage that created an aware, you know, the possibility of an abstract realm of values that floated above the material world and that was good. connected to yeah. ideas of truth. What this means, really, is that coinage gave birth to Western philosophy in a lot of ways. And the tendency toward abstract thought, uh, that unsituated abstract thought, that results in all these symbolic technologies, including up to and including the internet. And that, and, you know, if you take a, a Freudian view, this is about, in a sense, it's a kind of a death energy. Well, and that's why you get into, you get cities in which there are, are there's plenty of empty buildings and then people are on the street. I mean, it's the perfect, yeah, the, the, all the Frankfurt School thinkers would substitute the word reason for truth. Yet it's the same right. analysis right. Uh, that reason became instrumental and uh, was no longer a thing. It was simply like a tool or a part of uh, uh, a technology for cataloging and measuring and weighing things controlling and that was separate and distributing from right. the wider context. I mean, somebody said, and I forget who, uh, that people find it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And uh, it's really true because our thought is so infested with that exchange value, the instrumental thinking, the logic of the instrumental logical positivism, all of those things are products of what you're yeah, talking right. about. Because and, you, you know, when you look at this early history, you look at a transition, you know who writes about it is Ann Carson, another really great small book uh, called uh, uh, Economy of the Unlost, it's called. And it's about the impact on Greek poetry of the arrival of coinage and how it revised completely. She's looking at Simonides, Mm -hmm. And she talks about how um, uh, 
there was, you know, so it's, it's the transition from a gift economy to an exchange economy. Yeah. It's the birth of exchange logics. Yeah, a lot of people have read. Yeah. Well, um, the, the Franco Moretti is another guy that is very worth reading, really very good. And he had an essay in one of his books on um, Dracula and Frankenstein and uh, their relationship to the, the birth of capitalism. But he also talks about more significantly, perhaps, that, that period, the fin de siècle, right before 1900 and right after, sort of 1880 to 19, to the First World War, was um, an extraordinarily transformative period and, and following the Industrial Revolution. And you had the discovery of all these optical technologies, including the microscope and um, eyeglasses were perfected. Yeah. Um, and uh, that with that optical technology came the discovery of things like germs and all this world that we couldn't see Supernova. normally. Right. And that Freud appeared at the same time with a theory of things we couldn't see that were actually controlling our lives, these hidden things. Detective fiction came out of the same period, the birth of narratives with a detective who was searching for clues that were things you normally couldn't see, and you would discover these tiny things and enlarge their importance through analysis and so forth. Um, and that came to shape um, modern society in a huge way, and certainly in terms of narrative. Um, the fact that detective fiction has had such extraordinary durability is a whole probably podcast onto <laughs> itself, because there is, there is a, a, a fable or parable embedded in you know, nearly every detective story one could find. Um, <clears throat> Raymond Chandler being, of course, like sort of the quintessential that you have a knight errant out in search of the truth. And, you know, Philip Marlowe will get fired from his job, but he continues anyway because he is searching <laughs> for the truth. And then he gets beaten up and kicked around, and, but, he doesn't, but he doesn't stop because he's after the truth. And this makes him um, somehow... Uh, an undesirable in contemporary consciousness. You have kitsch versions of that Chandler template, that narrative all the time now. And it's interesting. I've used this example before, but I'm going to use it again. There was a, a, a film that came out, I think in the 80s, maybe the 90s, called Pacific Heights. And Michael, Michael Keaton, Keaton, right, Michael right. Keaton played a psychopath who rents the basement spare room from a young couple, Matt Modine, yeah. before he got old, <laughs> yeah. and somebody, I forget the actress, and they're a young, yuppie couple in San Francisco, and they buy this big house in Pacific Heights and renovate it, but they're, now they're short of money, so they decide, well, we'll rent to somebody. Michael Keaton shows up, he seems like a nice guy, and then he turns out to be a psychopath and terrorizes this young couple. And it was done as a sort of noir narrative. If that film had been made in the 1940s, the protagonist would have been Michael Keaton, mm. who rents a room from wealthy psychopaths who own this huge building in Pacific Heights, and they'd have terrorized this poor working class guy who comes. That's, that's what has happened, the confusion about what those early German emigre directors were doing with film noir. 
those were all, all those guys that fled Germany from, you know, Fritz Lang to Billy Wilder to Robert C. Odmack and all of them, and even the, you know, others like Jacques Tourneur that didn't flee Germany. Um, those were the films they were making. There was a huge disc, and they came right out of that, that period. Weimar, Weimar, yeah, that yeah. Weimar culture, and they saw that the state was to be distrusted, authority was to be distrusted, but that also the problems of man were inside man. They were deeply psychoanalytic, all those, all those stories, but they saw the dialectic between the subjective and these state forces they were of also repression. They were also optimistic in the sense that, you know, if film brought this to light, you know, that yeah. would be, people would would improve, right, if this were... But the system inherently okay. appropriates and neutralizes that message so that you get a film like Pacific Heights and everything that's come after it. I mean, one of the reasons Hitchcock remains watchable and important is because he disguised his message so effectively, in a sense. Mm. Oh, he's just the master of suspense, that Hitchcock. No, he's a completely subversive, strange Absolutely. person. Absolutely. Um, but you don't notice it somehow. And, uh, but, but in general, the system has, you know, has appropriated all of that stuff and now turns out very childish, infantile films that, that are deeply reactionary at their core and deeply racist at their core. And we should probably end with just that kind of note on white supremacism because it runs so acutely through American culture, through American society. And it goes back to, you know, the genocide of Native Americans to manifest destiny to, you know, the rugged individualism that is promoted constantly. And of course, Cormac McCarthy is a great example of a disruptor of that. But, you know, there are a few. And uh, it, is, it is worth remembering just how effective the forces of neutralization are and appropriation. I mean, um, I, you know, people say, well, this is the best black director. I said, well, Charles Burnett, Killer of Sheep, may be the only great American black film. And it is still the one of the enduring, indelibly great masterpieces of American cinema. Uh, but it's a hugely not entertaining movie. <laughs> and um, it has been recognized, but it's, you know, it's one of those films that's recognized but not watched very much. Mm -hmm. So, um, is anybody, any conclusions from people? Um, we'll do this again. I returned to Norway, but um, we will have many versions of this coming out and individuals speaking. Um, and doing this stuff and eventually on the aesthetic resistance channel or whatever you want to call it we're going to have um plays yeah as my friends said yeah wait, podcasts that's what we used to call radio right i said yeah kind of it's going to be radio <laughs> drama and um you know pinter everybody great understood the potential of um of recorded plays uh, radio plays. It's an intensely powerful medium. Another reason it's probably 
hugely unpopular and discouraged and rendered invisible. So that's it. Uh, aesthetic resistance on Instagram. <laughs> um, I've yet to figure out how to use Instagram and I really loathe it, but, but updates will appear on Instagram and um, that's where to look for updates and information about us. So I wanna thank Guy Zimmerman, Wes Walker, John Bauer, Chris Rossi, and uh, Jack Littman, the, uh, the recorder of all of this. So thank you, that's it. Mm -hmm.